0: Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time
1: to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 63 of the Coach Fury Podcast. Today's guest is an artist and illustrator named Tim Barron. Now, I stumbled upon... Tim's art on Instagram, and instantly became a fan and fell in love with it. Tim does a lot of really great skateboard graphics, a lot of monster art, and some really cool custom bootleg action figure things um, from movies that you know, aren't necessarily the norm when people think of 80s stuff. Uh, they're not the biggest ones. They're sort of more cult-like. And, and I instantly fell in love and appreciated that and knew that I wanted to have a chat with him on the show. And he was so generous and, and was was down. So I'm very excited for you to hear from Tim and I. Before you hear that chat, though, let's talk about some things going on in the world of Fury. This last weekend was the All the Swing Swingathon to raise money for Dustin Ripito's health fund as he's waiting for his kidney transplant. And Fury Industries, we raised 150 bucks, and I would like to do more. So if you would like to donate still, even though All the Swings is over, you can go to the show notes here, and you'll get a link to his GoFundMe page, Um, or you can still visit alltheswings.com to donate money towards Dustin's healthcare. So I appreciate that in advance. Look, it's holiday time, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all that stuff. Um, We're having a sale here, keeping it straight and simple, through the month of November, 50% off your first month of classes with a three-month minimum here at Fury Industries, your speakeasy of strength in Gowanus, South Brooklyn, New York. And workshops coming up. Man, in a few weeks, I fly back out to Taiwan to teach an HKC and an RKC. Now that RKC is sold out, the HKC is almost sold out, but that's gonna be Wednesday, December 19th in Taipei at SoulFit Taiwan. Then on January 13th, the first course of 2019, I head back home to Mark Fisher Fitness Bowery for Original Strength Pressing Reset. Then I'm heading out to Milestone Fitness out in Southeastern Massachusetts uh, for a DVRT four hour workshop on Saturday, January 26th. Then the RKC, man, I'm excited to teach another RKC in the city. Saturday, March 2nd and, and Sunday, March 3rd at Momentum Fitness. Congrats, Marco and the family, on the birth of your kid. And then at HKC Kettlebell Certification the following weekend at MFF Bowery. And still building some stuff up for uh, spring and summer. Sounds weird to say that we're building towards spring and summer already as it's getting cold here in Brooklyn. Uh, but Original Strength Pressing Reset, Saturday, September 21st, heads out to Dustin's Place of Business, ACWA Tulsa. And the following day at AC- ACWA, we're going to do the four-hour DVRT workshop there. So come and join us. Uh, A lot of cool stuff happening, but even more cooler right now is this conversation with Tim Barron and I. I was trying to think about how I came upon your artwork, Tim, and I think what happened was around this time last year, my wife Kim and her friends Eliza and Liz threw a, a benefit art show. In Brooklyn um, to raise money for an animal shelter named Animal Haven, and there were over fifty artists. And with that, I was donating sessions and getting tagged and helping share some stuff. So a lot of artists suddenly came into my view uh, on my feed, and I think that's where one of your images really caught my eye um, for skateboard art and some of your monster stuff. And then later, I saw your crawl figure, and it was like, man, I this guy, this guy, I need to talk to him. And then shortly after. I noticed you started posting about the Goldbergs. So your figures ended up actually on an episode of the Goldbergs. Uh, can you tell us how that happened?
0: Yeah, that was amazing. It was, uh, it was on a Saturday afternoon, and it had been a crappy, crappy week uh, the week prior. And so it was just one of those, you know, as an artist, you as an artist as a creative and you probably you know we have our ups and downs and we tend to feel our ups and downs a little bit stronger than other people do sometimes uh but it was a bad week and uh it was a saturday afternoon and i was uh i was home with the kids and i got this email and it just said adam goldberg on it and it took me a second and i was like wait a second Uh, and so i opened it up and then it it was It was him it was the adam goldberg the producer showrunner of the the show the goldbergs and he had uh he had seen my art and he was interested in and he liked the figures the toys that i make uh, custom figures uh small runs i've done some crawl figures some critters uh ghoulies some monster style figures and uh do really cool packaging and stuff for them. And and they've sold really, really well. And somehow he found me and somehow he, he saw my figures and he was like, Hey, I need to buy some of these. I want to use them on my show. And I'm just like, (laughs) after I, after I recovered from my sense of just uh, absolute shock, I was, um, I I was just in a state of delirium. I was like, yeah, absolutely. What, (laughs) what, uh, what can I do for you? And he told me what he needed. And it was funny because it was the last three of those figures I had. I just had them in my own personal collection. I had sold the, sold the rest of them. I hadn't made any new ones lately. And I was like, heck yeah. And so I sent them those. And it was really cool too because he was like, well, what do you want for them?" And I gave him the, kind of the base price of what I charge. And he paid me like twice as much for it. So wow. just a super cool guy. And... Um, so they showed up, and, and it wasn't just mine. He was uh, Adam Goldberg, super cool guy, and just into the toys and strong supporter of the whole art toy community. There's a whole community on Instagram of guys who are just obsessed with making uh, bootleg toys. And it, it kind of started with that Suck Lord guy. I don't know if yeah. you're up on his work at all. With him. Yeah. Yeah. I think he kind of popularized it. And. Um, there's a whole host of other people that, that make toys. And there is some amazing stuff that people are making out there. And um, so actually, if you watch the episode, it was the Bohemian Rap City episode from, I think it was like two weeks ago.
1: It's a double and, win because your stuff's in it. The toy collecting like, theme is in there. Not just yes. your stuff, but like, uh, the toy collecting obviously has a, a, a big place in my heart. Um, oh, yeah. But the Bohemian Rap City rap that his brother dropped, <sighs> my kids have been playing that on repeat. And I will likely have to tell them to stop screaming it while we're recording this show. It was it, incredible. Just nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, it was
0: incredible. And uh, so there was a bunch of other artists and I, I missed it the first time around because the whole, the thing opens up and it's funny because it's suck Lord is the guy who's playing the, the toys yeah. R
1: us. I just and, saw that on your, on your still that you posted up. Was, yeah. My kids po- were like who's the guy with the the mullet? They know of a mullet from old. <laughs> <P-."> I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, so I had to uh, like I missed it in the opening. I I I had this huge dopamine from seeing like the this whole huge dopamine rush from seeing these Transformers. I mean the whole opening scene was just done up like it was like 1984.
1: Dude, the GI the the, the GI Joe section just off to where your figures are behind suck Lord was like yeah. oh.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it was the Trans the G1 Transformers and then the Mask Boulder Hill playset and then the He-Man Eternia playset. It was just like like you know that rush you get when you see that stuff and so I totally miss it the first time and then all of a sudden people start posting sending me this stuff on Instagram my friend Ben and Jeff were watching it and he sent me a still of my Kroll figure in the far left corner and then um, I then the other photos started showing up on on Instagram and so I was able to repost then and so it was it was and then I followed up with him and just told him thanks again and uh, Adam Goldberg, that is. And he said, you know, thank you. And, and it was really, what was really surreal is that he said that him and suck Lord and, uh, uh another gentleman dove, um, from DKE toys were in, in his office having a conversation about bootleg toys. And they were they're actually discussing holding and discussing my bootleg toys. And the fact that like suck Lord was having a conversation that's, somehow peripherally involved me was just made me ecstatic. So I was stoked. The whole thing was just super awesome. And I think it was a real uh, um, encouragement for the, the whole bootleg community and just to see that Adam was into that stuff and just the, the feeling of appreciation there. And uh, Dano, I think it was Dano Brown uh, toys. He had several things in there and he does incredible work. And there's just so much talent out there. It was just such a cool thing to see it um, recognized on a show that's
1: like just embraces and loves that sort of nostalgia, like the Goldbergs. The show is super. Not just that episode, but just in general, the show is super authentic. Like the heart is just in the right place, and it's very funny, but it's so relatable. And it's one of those things that's actually surprising to me that my my kids, especially my daughter, she's only. 12 or you're going to be 12 like that she can resonate with it without having mm. any idea these are just silly old folks stuff yeah but it translates and i think it's good because it's so different from like how my kids are coming up because and i would imagine your kids do with with technology you know I mean, yeah video games are pretty new when i was coming in you know i was there when the atari mm. came up Yeah, had friends come over last night and you know uh Wilson's on his phone, Sadie's on her phone, mm-hmm. Ben's on the PS4 versus like, you know, maybe trying to like take turns on like an, you know, an Atari 2600. In <laughs> combat
0: actually. on the 2600.
1: Or actually playing. I have a hard time believing that people actually get Star Wars toys and play with them with other kids anymore versus like on your own, which is a weird thing. Like where they buy them and they um, immediately start thinking of collecting versus playing, which is, I know such a bizarre thought to me. Cause even I'm one of those guys, like I've saved stuff in packages in the past. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I've always like all the stuff that I have, like the Godzilla stuff behind me, they're not really action figures at this point, but um, <laughs> you know, they're all out. You know, they're, I just hate the idea of something being trapped in a box. Yeah. Um, which has had a, a massive impact actually on the stuff. A couple of things. So let's, let's unpack this. Hey, so, congrats yeah. on being on the show. And it Thank is it, guys like it, <laughs> the Bohemian Rap city rap is awesome so you should check that out absolutely um but uh, you mentioned the crawl figure and i think that's actually when i first saw saw the figure you posted before i knew about the goldberg show is actually when i was like i should reach out to this guy yeah that's like a deep cut you know like there's there's a lot of like popularity and nerddom from when we grew up and Mm. you know so there's obviously like star wars and star trek and he-man seems to be making a really big resurgence and transformers uh you know, despite that, that I feel like that franchise should just kill itself other than Bumblebee looks potentially fantastic. Uh, But um, to go into the things that you make pick, like even the stuff that I'm familiar from suck Lord. It's like, you know, Boba Fett's and Stormtroopers and Darth Vader's like, they're more like openly relatable as characters, like Mm -hmm. um, more known, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's not a slam at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But to go with critters and ghoulies and chopping mall and in particular Krull and the cyclops which had such a near and dear place to me that i bet a lot of people anybody under the age of 30 on this show probably has no <laughs> idea what the fuck we're talking about
0: probably not
1: so and of course one of the what was it the glaive one of the coolest weapons yes. ever is totally. Krull. it's like uh, if you almost took like he Man's sword and a ninja star a ninja
0: and ninja throwing star absolutely
1: and, and they had a kid <laughs> of that what was like a what was like one of the first this is sort of a weird question but what was one of the first moments you can remember as a kid where a movie hit you that hard uh-huh. and then part two of that is when did you see that start to relate and how your art manifested itself
0: Does oh that make man sense? oh total sense yeah you're that's a great question. And that's sort of right of the DNA of where my art sort of grows out of. So, uh, you, I was... You
1: and I are very similar in that way, even though I'm like, I'm doing something in a fitness realm, so mm-hmm. far removed from what I was into. yeah, It's clearly a part of like, uh, I don't want to say it's a gimmick because it's just authentic, but it's like, it's clearly a part of any of the songs that I play, the stuff that you see in the classroom when I'm teaching classes, like it's all coming from, I could probably pinpoint like six things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the first, I'm trying to think here, the, one of the first movies I saw that, that really affected me. The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, The Monsters. Uh, I, I, anybody who looks at my art knows I just have a strong affinity for monsters. And I remember, like, I had an awesome childhood, uh, Fury. I, I, I have wonderful parents, and I'm just totally blessed with just such a joy-filled childhood. And just so much... Uh, you know, they were kind enough to get me the toys. I, was, I, I grew up right in the heart of where all that cool uh, intellectual properties of the 80s, of, of G.I. Joe, of Star Wars, of Transformers, of Master of the Universe. I was right there, sort of like in the heart of it. Yeah. And so I, I have a distinct memory. And I've got, I've got a, a few of these. But the, one of my earliest memories, I'm pretty sure I was in either preschool or kindergarten, and i was in the store this department store with my mom called belmont's and i'd always seen like on tv i'd always seen the commercials i'd never seen the actual monster movies like frankenstein wolfman but i'd always see these like um like commercials for like the late night monster showings of like frankenstein and uh so and, and, and you know the fact that they were in black and white they were kind of scary but they weren't like terrifying uh, for my little mind, I, I was just very, very um, taken by that. And I remember, so I was in this department store with my mom, and I turned the corner into the action figure aisle. And, and by the way, to this day, I, I pretty much can't go into any store that I know has an action figure aisle, and just by pure habit, like I can't not stop in the action figure I'm aisle. The
1: same way, I will travel. <laughs> I, I will drive into town. So I just taught in Boston uh, maybe three months ago, and I'd uh-huh. be like, okay, I check into my hotel. Oh, there's the Walmart. I'll see what they have. I'm not buying anything, but I'll still check it out.
0: Yeah. Yep. I'm totally there with you, man. And so I I turned the corner into this this toy aisle and looking down at me from a peg was the the huge face of the uh, Boris Karloff Frankenstein just staring down at me. And it was the Remco three and three quarter inch black and white monster figure. And the packaging of that was just this big this black and white and this big Frankenstein head. And then there's this gorgeous three and three quarter inch action figure of Frankenstein. And I just like my, everything in me was just stopped by the, the magnanimity of that toy right there at age five, maybe. And I, I remember I left with that toy that day and, um, I went ahead and like, I collected the rest. I, like, Anytime I got a toy like that, I would have to, I couldn't not collect the rest of them, um, especially with those. Do you know, are you familiar with the Remco monster figures? Yeah. Oh my gosh, man. And then they even had a playset too. There was like a carrying case playset. And uh, like I had all of those. And um, so anytime I would see a, like I went to the toy store at least once once a week. Usually on Friday or Saturday, my mom would take me out. My mom or my dad would take me out, and I'd, I'd end up getting something. So, I uh, so of course the monsters was a huge deal. Star Wars, I, I saw. Gosh, oh here's one other one for you. Empire Strikes Back. Uh, before that movie came out, I remember being in Chicago with my parents, and again I was I was about the same time period. And I, we were in Chicago and I think we were in the Sears store and you know, again, for anybody under 30, you'll never know what this was like, but walking into the toy aisle and it wasn't just like a couple rows or a couple pegs of Star Wars, a couple pegs of transformers. No, it was like an entire half aisle filled from top to bottom, every peg with like 10 figures on it. And it was the first wave of the Empire Strikes Back figures. I freaked out. like, And there was no way I wasn't leaving with every new figure that I saw that day. And God bless my parents because they, they, <laughs> they got them for me. I laughed and I think I was only shy a couple of the, the new figures. But um, it was, it's
1: that that joy of like when the new line would come out, and this was with Star Wars and with G.I. Joe's. The, yeah. After you look at the figure on the front, you flip it over. Yes. And you the pictures of everything that was coming off, and that would be your checklist. And then through yes. that, just through repeat visits to the Toy Story, you'd be like, okay, so clearly this is the hard to find figure on here. And then yes. when the hell is it going to get? And this was before the age of collecting in the internet and, and, and all that stuff. And It was just like, oh, so that's the hard one. And then, when on like your ninth trip, you finally locked out, or you, one of the greatest feelings—like people, are like Tim, you'll appreciate this—and and listeners that collect, one of the best feelings ever is you go to it. You would go to your Toys R Us or whatever the toy store was, and you'd see unopened boxes getting ready to get shelved, and no employees. And you would go there, and with your mom or you a sharp <laughs> object, you would you would open the box. You'd read the side, and it would say something like Star Wars or GI Joe, and you you'd be the first one to open the fresh box and get the hard to find figures. Oh, like, okay. So there's nine, like, so when GI Joe, so there's like uh, five flashes, three snake eyes, and like one Cobra officer, right? Yep. So you, you yep. Cobra officer, <laughs> check. <laughs> it's a magical feeling. And it's really, it's, it's, it sucks that people don't get to experience it that way. Uh, or minimally get to experience it that way.
0: I know. And, um, the experience of the, uh, the wish books at the end of every summer, the Christmas catalogs. Yeah. That was our,
1: that was our internet, man. That was our. Someone on the G1. I think you and I are actually on a, in one of the same GI Joe groups, the, uh, a real American hero one, I think. I feel okay. Like, yeah. On uh, Facebook. On Facebook. And yeah. Someone posted up a picture of like, um, I don't know if it was a Sears. It might've been a Sears catalog and it had like the terror drone and, and all that stuff. But yeah, uh, before the internet, it was Sears JC Penney and customer service, at least on the East coast. Those were the three. That, i'd be like what's news coming out and i know you always had to sort of go by if you skip through all the closing and all the housing things then it would be like shitty musical instrument <laughs> and then you'd start to get into like the toys like yeah and, and then then my heart would start beating and then you'd be like okay here we are we're in star wars gi joe ter- I, I was pretty much like for pretty exclusive gi joe star wars I, I never got i had a few he-man figures i didn't love them um mm-hmm. i had a few transformers i'm a. have mentioned this on the podcast like Articulation is king for me, so that's why G.I. Joe figures for me. So
0: arm battle grip.
1: Best line, best, best innovation ever. Mm-hmm. And then have the level of vehicles and the detail, um, yeah. nobody else went as big as that in their prime, not as a collector focus, but just as like, we're gonna make a seven-foot battleship for your figures. <laughs> like, holy cow. Anyway, yeah. went off on a tangent. So you, the, the, those figures started to have a big impact yeah. And then where, you know, I feel like we all have that like one movie or that one image that sort of goes like, okay, this is this is where I want to go, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know whether it's skateboard culture or music, like I knew, like I found it and I'm like, I'm going to go this way because this is just, uh, yeah. you know, I, all those things you relate to it, you don't understand necessarily even why you relate to it in the beginning.
0: Yeah, totally. And I'm going to probably go on a couple couple different uh, tangents here. Um, especially because your show or your shirt uh, reminded me of this story. A lot of times when I was in the, um, the, the toy aisle you know, at this one store called Belmont's, right behind me was the albums, all the, the vinyl records. And I would always see the Iron Maiden album covers. Yeah. And it was like this... Forbidden Fruit, like it was like scary and I knew I wasn't allowed to listen to it, but the covers were just so rad. And I remember seeing like the cover of Live After Death and Peace of Mind and uh, the Somewhere in Time um, album cover. Yeah. Oh my gosh, just sensory overload. But anyways, it was little moments like that, I think all along. And I think that, you know, just going back to the toys is the, the box art to these toys from the 80s like those that box art and that card art especially for GI Joe and Transformers that did something to me like that that injected a level of creativity and wonder into my i don't know childhood imagination that wouldn't have been there otherwise and it was You know, moments like that and like with the Frankenstein all kind of built up over time and just uh, like so many 80s cartoons. Like I was a huge He-Man fan, Uh, not just a He-Man fan. I was a fan of like the He-Man knockoffs, uh, like Warlord and like even the ones Mm -hmm. that they did shows for like Black Star and Thunder the Barbarian, all that stuff. I watched it and I still like whenever they come out on DVD, a lot of times I'll grab them off of, of of Amazon and just watch them while I'm while I'm on the elliptical or whatever. But
1: I literally just got the GI Joe the season the series two complete set, which Ooh. is like after the GI Joe movie happened, it picks up at Cobra Commanders. Cobra Commander is the snake. Oh no way! Yeah, that no, was
0: done by a different animation company. Yeah, too, and then
1: man. the first two episodes are basically like you know they're the it's like Operation Dragon Fire or something, and it's about how <laughs> Baroness and the most random of dreadnoks, Nagai. Oh Try to make oh my gosh. Cobra Commander a human, uh, or at least humanoid again. But yeah, I totally, I totally relate to all that. And and what I, what I, would also I think not just in your art, but your art in particular for me, but part of that in the bootleg toy community, which we should probably define in a little bit, is yeah. how much you know. Like I said, the back of the box art, but like GI Joe art in particular, man, it was like just so dynamic and so like literally exploding off of the card into your literally face, literally exploding, right? yeah, and. The Star Wars art is an interesting one because for me, that was the first one that was like, take, you're taking part of the movie home because they would have a still of the movie. Mm -hmm. And even when they started re-releasing, like uh, people don't, people think Star Wars, don't even realize necessarily that Star Wars stories went away for a long period of time. But when they Mm -hmm. started doing the Power of the Force figures, um which are shockingly worth nothing
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i'd say shockingly worth nothing <laughs> i mean man
1: they were really weird but they were like the buff they tried that in the 90s they relaunched star wars toys Pri- prior to the episode uh episode one and stuff and all that stuff and the shitty special editions yeah um where they're like diesel and Carrie and fisher may she rest in pre in peace like her figure the leah figure of the series one that is that it's just horrible.
0: that was rough yeah
1: but I know I went out and bought them, but then at oh, a certain at a certain point, they started re sort of vamping them with throwback art to the original line. And there's just something about the packaging art when you're a kid that just resonates. And I think it has to be attached to the item, right? Like so, toys are perfect. Like I don't look at like a retro cereal box and go like Wow, that's cool. Although right. I'd understand when somebody does, but mm-hmm. when it's attached like a GI Joe figure, like when they you know they do re releases. I don't even like the look of the figure on the re-releases, but it's just so cool to see the art yep. um, and to see where like you, where that's become the big part of the medium of a lot of what you do is the package art. And same thing with Sucklord; like it's it's a modification of the figure, but it is the backing. Mm-hmm. When did you decide to start playing with that? Is that something you you started doing younger, or is that something that evolved?
0: Yeah, that probably about I'd say about seven or eight years ago. I was, are you familiar with the whole Mego Corporation, the toys? Yeah. Okay, that was sort of my first love when it came to recollecting as an adult. Um, my wife got me a, um, my wife had gotten me a Green Goblin Mego uh, December of, nine, uh, no, 2008. And that, I, I was kind of sort of collecting a little bit here and there. It was nothing in particular. It was just little pieces of this and that for about 10 years. And then my wife got me that and something just snapped in me. And that really pushed me down the road of the the, the Mego characters. And for those of you who don't know the, the Mego characters, they were like eight inch figures, very articulated. They made in the seventies and they went out of business in the early eighties. But the thing that was magical about them is they had cloth clothing. and. It, it sounds bizarre. Two
1: crappy snaps in the back for yes. every
0: <laughs> yes, but there is something so cathartic about switching Batman's costume with Joker's costume, or uh, trying to stuff your Hulk inside the Spider-Man suit and realizing that doesn't work without tearing it. You know, you, you, there is something magical about that. But anyways, I got back into these and I started collecting them like crazy, and then I saw that there's this huge community of Mego collectors on the internet, and then there's a whole there a whole uh, uh, crew of people who would make their own custom Migos, the costumes and the heads. And I was just like, well, man, this is awesome. Like, I really want to do this. And so this is like 2009 or so, maybe 2010. And um, so I started just looking into how to, how to do that with basic like making molds and the resin and stuff like that. And so I started getting into sculpting my own heads for my, the, the Mego characters and I made like a swamp thing and I made, um, like an Adam strange and just a bunch of other things like that, like a misfits crimson ghost before NECA released theirs. And so I would, uh, I learned how to do the molding and then the, the resin casting and, um, I don't know that that part of it is a good idea for me to do. I'm pretty ADHD. And so Tim Barron at 1.30 a.m. In the, in, the, uh, in the kitchen dealing with chemi- you know chemicals and <laughs> stuff like that, I kind of concluded I'm probably just going to better off paying somebody to do this for me. So anyways, but that was how I got into the, just the customizing and the bootleg thing. Is It started with Migos and then my good buddy, uh, one of my main collecting friends, uh, Ben... Uh, he had recommended, he had saw that I was doing that and he was like, Hey, you should try, you know, cause he's really into the, the little, I don't know, like the little muscle guys. Uh, if you remember those, the pink, little pink dudes yeah. from the eighties, he's like, you should try making some monster figures like that, like a, like a critter and like a ghoulie. And so I did that. I did that. And then. Uh, but I was, I was selling them for like seven, eight bucks a piece, no packaging. And again, this is like 2010, 2011, something like that. And, and then those just kind of, um, those just kind I just kind of let those sit for a long time. And then I got into Instagram and that was probably about six, five, six years ago. And then I found this whole community of people out there and I'm just like, well, crap, I, I've done some of this stuff before. This is cool. And so I had started reaching out to a couple of these guys. There was one extra Tim Harrison, uh, was his name. And I was just like, Hey, I could be happy to do some artwork for you. Cause that's why he was doing some cool stuff. And so I ended up doing probably about a dozen pieces of original art for, uh, a couple guys. Um, uh, there's another guy, Skip bro. I did, he did a lot of really cool star Wars bootleg toys. Like he did, um, I'm trying to think like, uh, I'm trying to think he did like a, the sort of the black death trooper before Hasbro even released him. They did a version of that. And I did I did a cool cover for him that looked like an old EC toys. Uh,
1: his name's familiar. I feel like I've seen his stuff, skip bro.
0: Cool. Super cool dude. And so I did quite a few pieces for him. And then that kind of got me hooked in with these other guys who were there like, Hey, saw what you did for skip bro. saw what you did for Tim, uh, would you would you be interested in this? So I was like, sure. And so I, long story boring, I finally ended up um, striking a couple of bartering deals uh, with this. And I was like, hey, I've got some some things I would like made. Could we swap some art for some uh, some casts, some castings? And so I had Tim Harrison, he awesome dude. He had made me the the curl guy. And then he made me, I did a, a Star Wars holiday special lumpy figure that I had made. That and, was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But the key there was the key in getting these things going with that, with the critters and the, the ghoulies as well is the the packaging. I was not packaging these things earlier. Uh, I wasn't even painting them. I was just kind of selling them and that's, you know, not, people didn't really, the something of the packaging makes it official. And like you do some really cool packaging art to go with a, and, and that not that sort of the essence of like some of the 80s toys? Fury is uh, like you could have had uh, animal excrement packaged. Uh, but if you had cool box art to it released by Hasbro, yeah. I would have bought it. I would have bought it. I completely agree. Yeah. And so um, I mean, I, I fell for that. There was a line called Manglores when I was in kindergarten and there was these figures you were supposed to be able to tear apart and put back together. And they didn't, wor- they didn't work. They did anything but that. And the, the molds were terrible. But the box art was this Ken Kelly, gorgeous, um, beautifully painted uh, fantasy art of these monsters and creatures and stuff. And I, I bought that. And um, so anyways, that's sort of the, one of the philosophies that I work from is that you can take a really cool product and, and you can make it 10 times even cooler if you think about how you're packaging it. And so that's kind of how everything came to fruition with the bootleg stuff in the past three years. By helping other people out, they started helping me out. And then in turn, uh, I started kind of getting putting my own things up for sale and then people kind of found out about me. And so, uh, so that's kind of how the whole, and then eventually Adam Goldberg found me. And so, uh,
1: that's, a, that's amazing. It, it, yeah, and, it, and it,
0: What's funny is that it all started from my friend Ben saying, Hey, just, you should think about sculpting a critter or something. And I was like, okay, I'll give it some thought. And then it shows up on the Goldbergs, you know, eight years later. So it's hilarious.
1: And again, a deep cut movie, like Critter and Ghoulies yeah. aren't movies necessarily that have, have, have transferred over, you know, like no. sort of hopefully maybe listening, anybody who's listening to this show that's unaware, um, check them out. They're just super fun monster movies or sci-fi. Um, Critters in particular has, uh, have a, has a soft spot for me yeah Um, but that whole hbo era (laughs) you know like you you, you'd look at the tv guide to find out when the thing's coming on because you had no idea and uh and just watching them and repeat watching them even if they were bad movies like completely going through them time and again and i agree on the packaging i think as an adult collector you know uh So I started recently rebuying GI Joe stuff. Like uh, I can get a bit of crack addicty. My Godzilla toys are fairly expensive. They're all from a line called X Plus from Japan. Okay. The GI Joes I didn't realize you you can buy like in pretty decent shape for not a whole lot of money at all. Like so the price, the reward versus the price of the hunt of the collect, and the fact Mm. that I'm like, why haven't I been collecting these? Because it is the best, my favorite toy line ever. Yeah. But when it's a single loose figure, it's like you want the art to display it, but it's way too much. So when I look at your stuff and uh, folks, we'll post up the Tim's website on the details notes, but it's timbarron.com. Um, mm-hmm. You'll see the pack arts, what sells it. And that's what, as a kid, we would have, it, it just harkens back as a, as a, as a grown a kid being like, if I go to the toy store, the art is what would help. Because mm-hmm. quite frankly, the figures in terms of like, if you look at their actual sculpts and you look at the facial details of the paint apps, they're usually pretty mediocre. You know, like very basic, but Mm -hmm. it was that package art that sold them. You know I mean? um, They're more licensed now than bootlegs, but the whole popularity of, uh, what is it? Reactive? Reaction? Reaction
0: by Super 7. Incredible.
1: It's And how varied in terms of characters and scope that that's all become. um, You are buying the packaging art for that. And the idea of a retro figure, as opposed to like, it's a cool figure. Like my, uh, I got my wife, I, I was teaching in, um, Marietta, Georgia, and right across from the gym I was teaching at, um, gosh, what was it? I want to sell tell the guy's his name, Plastic, Plastic Empire, I think was the name of the store. And uh, I my my wife's really in a pinhead, so I got her an autographed pinhead figure. Oh, cool. On a reactive card. But the figure itself is like, eh, but the yeah. card art's with <laughs> yeah. what sells it with the signature. Yeah. So I, I love that you have that. that 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 is the emphasis because I think there's like, as there's for me as a collector, I want to have like, you know, I want to open my toys to put them out as their toys, but I I don't view yours necessarily as like, I look at them more as a total piece of art as opposed to a bootleg Mm -hmm. toy with an art card. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, totally with the blister card is part of the thing for me.
0: Absolutely. Yep. And I think part of the, I think part of what people have responded well to with my, my, my bootleg toys is that, the movies that I've done them for, Kroll, Critters, Ghoulies, Leprechaun, are movies that, I, you know, I almost don't think that anything else has been done for those movies product-wise. It's not bootleg in some way. Uh, I know that there's been a couple releases for some of the horror films, but Kroll, there was like a board game in a, in a, in a Cyclops uh, Halloween costume, but those are like two of the only items for Kroll. I,
1: I don't remember ever seeing a Crawl toy um, folks, if you haven't heard of the movie crawl, you should really <laughs> check it out. I can't sell uh, the, the movies we talk about. That is uh, like a legendary one. It's like a fantasy adventure. The guy's got a fancy, it's like everything you'd want as a kid movies. Like, so, uh, what was the, what was the one with the guy who had the double bladed sword too? the sword and the serpent? Was that it? Um, oh, could
0: be. I like I there.
1: there were just things like as a kid, like if it was a fantasy and it had a cool weapon, that was enough to watch the movie. But oh yeah. It had that creepy spider thing. And I hate spiders. And that, oh, yeah. um, yeah but they had the Cyclops and it was the first time that like I've ever seen a Cyclops in a movie that was actually just like a cool character to like follow along with. It's usually like Jason and the Argonauts ask or something. Yeah. Just monstrous and not doing anything. So it's a, it's a super fun movie that I, I, I would imagine the effects don't hold up, but I'd imagine that film still holds up.
0: Uh, in a loving way they do in a 1980s sort of a love child between star Wars and Lord of the Rings sort of way, uh, yeah, the special effects are 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 bad, but there's just so much love in that movie. Like the people who made that movie, like they were darn convinced that that was going to be the next Star Wars and the next
1: it it, it didn't look like a cash buy in. Like they were just trying to make it looks like they really tried to make a great movie as opposed oh. to just trying to cash in on like the popularity of Star Wars.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun. I mean, it, and it also it's kind of the if you're familiar with the whole Campbellian hero's journey, uh, concept. It's a traditional hero's journey of like the secondary father figure, the the something missing. Got to go find something. You sh- you know fight the shadow side of yourself or whatever. It's it's traditional hero's journey and everybody loves
1: that. So I'm going good- to make a note to find where it's streaming and I'll put that up in the thing. <laughs> everyone everyone's <laughs> homework hey, th- to track it down.
0: Yeah, I was, and I did see that Walmart. I was in Walmart last night and I happened to see that they had a pretty rad re-release of crawl in sort of a vhs style vintage packaging so just oh, wow. fyi
1: that's good to know i was um, speaking to that i was at target and speaking to mago so mago folks like again it, it, you might not have you've missed it if you were if you were a 30 or under probably because in yeah. the early 80s the um the guy who ran it right he went to jail for doing some shady tax something stuff, like that stuff, yeah or licensing <laughs> things but they actually are making a huge push. I noticed in Target the last over the last two months you can buy like they had Happy Days figures, they had uh giant size DC Justice League yeah. figures, um 15 inch yeah. like, like Mago style thing. So um like here's the problem with toys, right? So yeah. I don't know who puts them out, but I know like through, if you go to comic book shops for years now, they've been remaking like Mago style Mm -hmm. um, superhero figures and every now and then Marvel and toy biz, they've tried to do it too. And it hasn't quite hit the success, but they make these really cool justice league ones. um, Mm -hmm. And they go into like deep characters that are side way far back. You would have had to watch super friends or watch the actual shows. The problem with toys now is like, everything's like 25 bucks a figure. And I'm like you and my kids are where like I'm not going to buy like one figure and then not want the others. But as a dad now, I can't afford to go out and buy like here's 120 bucks with tax. I just spent on four figures. for you. (laughs) I just can't do it. Whereas those G.I. Joe figures used to be three bucks. I know. Um, Looking at the price tags of like, you know, that that flag. So we mentioned the USS flag, folks, if you're not in in a G.I. Joe. I don't judge you for that. <laughs> uh, the, the company line Hasbro literally made a seven foot battleship that could fit multiple, I don't know, 18 inch size jet fighters. Like it's the biggest yeah. toy I've ever seen. Yeah. It was like 99 bucks. Oh yeah. And it seemed like insanely expensive at the time, but mm-hmm. now there's like uh, you want to go buy an ad for a kid. Uh, you know, so I've looked at the ad ads for, for my kids and they are literally like 219 bucks new when they come out yeah it's like i'm not going to collect it you don't want it just to be in the box because quite frankly so many people don't open their toys anymore that they make it even worth less so you might as well open it Mm -hmm. but i don't financially have the money to support like like my (laughs) parents my mom would take me to the shop to go buy some figures yeah you could go to a toys r us and come home with like 20 bucks and -hmm. you can come home with like a bunch of stuff yeah and now you got one figure
0: i know and I think that a lot of that has just has to do with it's kind of a generational switchover. Where, I mean, the market, the toy market now, you know, for start, I mean, it's primarily it's the prices are probably higher. Do you think because they're producing them almost primarily for collectors, and therefore it's a lower production run, and therefore they have to charge more to justify. Making it, do you think?
1: I I don't even know across the board if it's a lower production run issue. I think that's part of it for some of the smaller lines. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think like, you know, if you look at even say a regular Star Wars figure that comes out. So whenever the new movie comes out, Mm -hmm. you make figures, they're still like nine bucks new. And those are certainly being mass produced. Mm -hmm. Um, Vehicle-wise, I think that's like what what really sucks with them too, is because my kids have a bunch of the new stuff. And vehicle-wise. They seem to have really dropped since Clone Wars. They made a lot of really cool stuff for the Clone Wars cartoon. Mm-hmm. Really cool vehicles that still seem to have a level of quality. And more and more of the stuff that's come out for Force Awakens and Rogue One and uh, Last Jedi, it's just shittier. Like it's just mm-hmm. not as quality like um so, and it might be because people are so concerned of things getting like stabbing in the eyes and stuff, but like the points on like an X Wing, they'll be like rubbery and bendy as opposed to hard plastic. Um Seat like seats and things just won't be sturdy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I have um from Rogue One, Cassians. Uh, what do they call that? Was it a U-wing? I think it was oh, a whatever that whatever ship yeah. is, his main ship. Like if it stays, those those wings aren't hard plastic. So as it's just sitting on their shelf, not playing, it's mm. trying to fold over. No and kidding. That, and it's like a thirty dollar or forty dollar vehicle versus mm. what would have been a ten dollar thing back in the day. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I do think it's, it's interesting. I kind of like always, and I mean this in a loving way because I bought them, but I kind of want to blame Spawn figures for the start. Of, <laughs> I think McFarlane really was onto something really special at the time, but he's the first one that I was like aware of purposely made variant figures, which in yes. comic book land was also coming off of the fucking ridiculous hologram covers. Covers, yeah. All of that stuff. And I think that was when people started going like, oh, I need to have everyone and be a completionist and I need to keep it in a box. And I yeah. think those came out before the Star Wars relaunch. I could be off on my timeline, but I'm pretty it sure those came out first. And yeah. I think that started a baseline in the comic shops. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was working in a comic book shop, actually my childhood comic book shop, when those Star Wars figures came out. And that was when the hunt was on. Like, oh, window, yeah. uh, Our comic shop, Heroes World in Levittown, Levittown, Long Island, was in the same, at this time, it moved around several times, but it was in the, it was in the same shopping center as a Toys R Us. So across the parking lot was the Toys R Us. Mm. <laughs> so we would have friends at Toys R Us. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell us when the new boxes came in. At this point, there was like a Boba Fett figure that had like two half circles or one Remember half that. circle. Yeah. you would tell us when those came in and see three POs and Princess Leia's. And then we would go buy them and then put them in the comic book shelf. Uh, I, I would imagine there's no... And, and we would sell them on our own. Yeah. And pocket the markup. Because it would be like, <laughs> you know, a $9 figure that we could sell for 25 bucks. But that figure now is not worth $9. <laughs> no, <know>? no. <laughs> That's the hard part. Like I've, I showed my kids, I've got a box at my folks' house in Long Island. I've got a box of like Imperfect, the first two series of those things. And I, I bet I could probably maybe get, if there's 16 figures in there, I could probably get 30 bucks.
0: Yeah, you're probably right about that. I think that there's a couple that are, if you know enough about it, they're worth, they're worth some money. But you're right. I mean, I think that the fate of a lot of those Power of the Force figures that were from the nineties is that I I think a lot of us just kind of like gave them away to like the, I don't know, the, whatever the Christmas kids thing, a lot of them just get dumped in those toys for tots buckets, you know, or just um, kind of given to a sold at a discount to a friend who has young kids who will play with them. They really didn't keep, I mean, they're just so, there's so many of them there,
1: there's so many of them and they're sculpted horribly like i mean they did start to peel back the muscle things like they, they tried to do the typical 90s like they did it they, they went with yeah. it with gi joe too blame um, it on the 90s if you remember gi joe extreme oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like the 90s you can blame <laughs> my for my tribal tattoos on the '90s, and um and and everything getting buffer um yeah and the action figure land but I forget where I was going. Oh, the, the problem with those things was that the best part of the Power of the Force re-release was it was cool to have Star Wars fans have something to like hunt out again. It yes. like reignited that going to the toy store. Like me and my friends Yes, go and hunt them out on the weekends.
0: Yeah, I'm familiar be, with this. Get
1: like three stores, like, okay, we're going to go to these three stores by 10 a.m. They open at 9.30, we're going to do this. And the vehicles, what was great was like they re-released the original vehicle molds. So that this was is, cool. Like, you know, like I, I, when my kids were old enough to have a Millennium Falcon, I didn't buy that. like $300 one I bought mm-hmm. the one I wanted them to have the one that I had or the X wing. So that was cool. But they had made these diesel figures that wouldn't fit in the vehicle. <laughs> so it was clearly aimed more at collecting than play. Cause they, they lost a critical aspect of playability. Yeah. But yeah, I think like production runs is part of it. And I think they just expect that people that are super fans are going to be on the hook for more money as opposed mm-hmm. to being fortunate enough to have kids that suddenly caught on to their stuff. Yeah. And I just it's it's really tricky. Like um
0: have you ever heard the Iron Man Two theory also?
1: No, no but I, do don't heard, I don't know.
0: I've heard we share I don't know. I don't know if there's anything to this. So if anybody is out there who knows, let us let, let, let us know. But I have heard that there is a significant change that took place in the in the toy industry with the release of Iron Man two and the figures for that. Because apparently, and again, I can't confirm this, but I've heard this before that they released that. I think it was Hasbro. Did Hasbro have the license for that? Anyways, but they released a ton sure. of Iron Man two figures. It just did not sell. And um, that because that, that was like one of the first major superhero movies where um, the product just didn't move um, very well, that, they kind of took that as a new baseline for product for movies related to superheroes and action figures in general. I can't confirm that, but I've, I've heard that theory.
1: No, I mean that, that seems realistically like it could be possible because they're, they're, they're throwing so much money at the toy thing that quite yeah. frankly, you start like usually spoilers come out, especially if you follow like certain websites and groups, spoilers tend to come out when the toy lines introduced at like a toy fair as I know. A, like anything, anybody ever seeing the movie, you start to see like what the ships are going to look like and what some of the people are going to look like where their outfits. Um, yeah. out about them when the toy and retail stuff is, is released. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that just happens too, where like I would imagine even before that with episode, like I remember all like episode one and episode two toys for Star Wars when that hit. Mm -hmm. remember, like, for Phantom Menace, there was, like, a big... Like, I remember being at the the Times Square on Union Square... The Toys R Us... Sorry, not Times Square. Toys R Us in Union Square. I used to work across the street. And there'd be, like, fellow nerds. Like, every morning, I would go there before I started work. (laughs) And just to see if I could grab some figures. And that was, like... I was, like, all right. New characters. This is cool. And then you're, like, oh, those movies are all... Like, they really don't hold up. And they're mediocre. And I think they realized they were making a lot of stuff that wasn't selling. Mm -hmm. And then... Clone Wars is an interesting thing because I think they made a lot of stuff and I think it's sold, but I don't think a lot of fans knew. I think that was actually almost for the kids because my kids loved it. And yeah. and then when the Phantom Menace came out, sorry, not Phantom Menace, uh, Force Awakens, mm-hmm. I think it was really exciting. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of those kids from Clone Wars were already a little like, my kids had like a, basically like, a two-year window. like It's weird to say it. They're, they're not even that old, but they're kind of over... Mm-hmm. relatively overplaying with toys in a way. In that way. Yeah. Like they're they've graduated to more to video games. Yeah. Um you know, my daughter in particular, they're both like got it's a weird thing now that anime is a thing. Almost all the kids now are trending on anime. Mm-hmm. Like, whereas in our g- generation, it's like, you basically, well, what is anime? Like, you didn't have, you couldn't go to Netflix and find out what that was. Somehow you went to, like, a Suncoast video or a comic yeah. book shop, and they had, like, their one thing of Viz Media VHS tapes, and then you had Akira, Fist of the North Star, maybe Ninja Scroll, and you went on a deep dive through that. Whereas now yeah. they're just finding all of these shows. So there's an appreciation of fandom that's on one end, like, really interesting and, and super cool because they can have access to stuff. But I, I, one of the things I, was, I forgot who was talking about this last night is like the, the art of the browse is done. You know, like the art of like going to a shop and hunting something out is is kind of done. Yeah. Uh, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't so, know where we went off on that.
0: <laughs> no, I, I hear you. What is it like for Godzilla stuff overseas? Is that, I mean, what is the collecting market like in Japan for stuff? So
1: it's It's, it's interesting. So if there's toy stores and I think there's actually, I haven't been to one, but I think Toys R Us, to, Toys R Us definitely still exists in Taiwan. Really? And uh, I believe they still exist in Japan, but there's a, where I stay at least in Tokyo, there is a, a very cool toy store. I think it's called Haku Hinken toy, Plot, toy Park in Ginza. And, you know, you go up, it's, it's like a five floor thing. And it's like, you know, kind of generic novelty gifts and some stuffed animals on floor one Second floor might be like, you know, uh, kids like four and under. And then there's like, you know, the action figures and they'll have star Wars stuff. And mm-hmm. then, but then they'll have like, you know, uh, their figures tend to be less on cards. They tend to be more on hang tags. So mm-hmm. there's be like a wall or, 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 or display of Ultraman figures, like a hundred Ultraman figures, all just hanging from a peg. And then yeah. there'll be a Godzilla section and they're hanging from tags as opposed to being on blister packs. So it, there's the way to get that. Like, he's definitely like, um, a cultural hero in a way or a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. But when I go out there, like the people that come to my courses, they're they're I think they've a, I think they really appreciate that I have a genuine affection for it, but yeah. I am clearly more into Godzilla than any of the people there. No right. Kidding. They're into other stuff. Like they're um it might be Cayman Rider or one of these other shows that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to like being so much about Godzilla, but they clearly realize the importance of Godzilla. Um Culturally, yeah, but it, it but th- that said, there's a, a big vintage second hand market for toys mm-hmm. um, and stuff for like in anime land is really huge, obviously, because it's like, in, I mean, anime in Japan is just cartoons, uh, yeah. So, there's a place called Nakano Broadway Mall that is like four floors of just wonderful vintage toys and new stuff. So, wow. there's a, a storyline called Mandarake. And for transformers and superhero stuff and Godzilla, Ultraman, all that stuff, it's got all it there. All the vintage stuff is there. No GI Joes, or at least not many, because they were released there. Uh, I think by Takara. Uh, really. You find these specific shops that would be like the equivalent of finding like the best comic book shop in your neighborhood for vintage toys. Yeah. You know, some some comic book shops have a great toy collection. Mm-hmm. A lot of them don't um Mm -hmm. this would be like going to one that has like everything so like a floor of back issues a floor of toys a floor of uh music and dvds and stuff they're just monstrous um so that's pretty amazing if you ever get to go to tokyo uh any of the listeners uh david and i talked about this last one Nakano mall on broadway it's like going through a japanese toy history lesson wow really they have a room of stuff from basically like the introduction of a vinyl toy in japan Wow. And things are you know over 10 to 20 to 30 thousand dollars in it but just to go there and see it it's nothing i'm interested yeah. in but you're like holy crap like people forget godzilla 1954 yeah you know he i was what was the 64th birthday was just while i was out there <laughs> so you know whoever made the first toy like that's an old toy yeah so that's really cool and you realize like you know we don't have any GI Joes like even the like, original twelve inch GI Joes don't go that far back.
0: Yeah, um, wow. So
1: they, 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 there's an appreciation of the vintage toy, but I think for American collectors, we might appreciate it even more because we just don't have that here. Yeah, you know, there's a handful of stores like Image Anime or um, what's the other one in the city? Uh, Midtown Comics sometimes gets some of the newer stuff in, but there's not a lot of like Toy Tokyo. So this will actually okay. Toy Tokyo is a good place in the city that y- you'll find vintage Japanese stuff, but you'll also find, you know, the art, the bootleg toys and art stuff. Um, we, this is actually a good point to sort of get into what bootleg toys even are. So in New York, the first introduction here, this sort of rise, which I think, again, I, I'll say like Todd McFarlane did a lot of positive for the industry in terms of like bringing it to a level of quality. That, oh,
0: absolutely. That yeah. an
1: adult could look at and, and, and like appreciate and mm-hmm. kid would think was cool, but they weren't really meant to be played with. Yeah. Um, so Kid Robot became a big thing out here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, Kubrick's, is that the name of it? Like high-end designer vinyl toys mm-hmm. and sculpts. And yeah. I have a friend, Steve Zukowski, that, you know, would go on and make his own thing, uh, Sketchbot. That became really big and like a really on-trend, not just with collectors, but also with like wealthy people, right? So it became almost like a lifestyle brand. Interesting. And through that, I think became like that became so expensive. I think that's where, uh, I, I think that's where my introduction to Sucklord came in, where it was like, no, this is like the real toys that we actually care about, and we're gonna like riff and make statements based on these guys. Yeah. Right? When do we, like like in terms of like I guess even just explain what a bootleg figure is because I don't know if, if if someone would realize what that what, what that actually entails.
0: Yeah, so it could be a couple different things. And it could be something very serious or something that's, uh, you know, farcical or whatnot. Uh, a bootleg figure could be anything from, you know, making a figure of a character that was never made, that there was a toy never made for, say, like the, the you know, I made the Lumpy from uh, Star Wars Holiday Special uh, figure. Um, that was Chewbacca's son, alleged son. In that, um, in, <laughs> in that, that masterpiece. yeah. <laughs> uh, or it could be something just, uh, just crazy. Uh, Sucklord does a bunch of just really crazy things. Um, some of those other guys, uh, like um, I'm trying to think, Death by Toys. He did the chopping mall figure. I did a piece of art for the, the backer card for that. Um, yeah, it could be something as yeah and, and it can be something that you sculpt and produce yourself like if you sculpt it and then make the mold and then make the castings from that or you can take a pre-existing figure uh, and I know Sucklord has done a lot of that and then alter the pre-existing figure somehow or some way, cast it in a different color, give it a different um, title or whatever. So it, it it runs a whole gamut of completely original to taking uh, pieces or parts or holes of, of pre-existing figures and adapting them in some new way, whether to make a, something cool that never existed or just something farcical and, and fun.
1: Is there like le- like potential legal kickback on that stuff? Like, I mean, is, is there a certain amount that you <laughs> have to alter? is this like sort of like, should we not talk about it on the podcast?
0: <laughs> no, um, that's a good question. I've had people ask me that. The guy, some guys that I work with were just like, so... If your Kroll figure is going to be emblazoned across of the Goldbergs for everybody to say, does that mean that the the owners of the Kroll intellectual property are going to come after you? And I was like, I don't, I hope not. I I don't think so. But I think that, you know, and I think, I think that I don't know all the the answer here, but I have a couple thoughts. And and I think that much of it has to do with um, producing a piece of art uh, that's produced in limited quantities, uh, versus, like, taking something and just, you know, taking it to an overseas uh, factory in China and just having them mass-produced by the hundreds yeah. or thousands, you know. With the runs of figures that I have done, it's typically in, I don't know, about 9 or 10 at a time, 20 at the most. Um, but again, I, I you know, uh, and I think it also is that fine line of how the law defines... Um, I don't even know my legal terminology here, but a, uh, what do you call it? A, a parody versus yeah. a, you know, that gets into that sort of thing. So I don't know all the, the ins and outs, I, but those are just a couple thoughts, you know, the amount produced, uh, you know, is it a, you know, is this something that's just completely factory output or is this something that you're, you know, that you have your hands in that you're painting each one individually. And so there's a certain sense of you're selling a piece of art. So all things to be discussed, I suppose. But, but I don't I mean, know.
1: That, that's where I, you know, I, I I wasn't trying to make that a loaded question by any means. I think that's for me where I feel it is. It's like, you know, parody seems like you're whenever you hear parody, you feel like you're joking on something. Yeah. It's it's as opposed to like if you can make a painting of whatever you want to make a painting of. So if you make a painting of a stormtrooper, mm-hmm. but then you're making like, you know, your or a sculpture of a stormtrooper mm-hmm. and sell it. Um when you're making the figure, you're kind of doing a combination of both. Yeah versus trying to like repro or try to sell it as an original um you know uh i know something came up i, I don't know if you're familiar with um i don't know if it's a, a person black major in the gi joe world oh yes yes right like so oh, yes. he makes these really great reproductions of gi joe figures and he does his own paint schemes but yeah. they're pretty spot on like in terms of the molds
0: oh yeah um, I that, think they're taken from the original, like snake eyes and bats and and the cobra guards and stuff like that. I think that they're they're cast from the original molds. Or, yeah,
1: so so there's like a gray area there where you know I know somebody bought a lot of figures and uh, uh, not a lot, folks, like a lot, like meaning like a bunch of figures at once. And, yeah. You know, there was a, a a rare GI Joe figure called uh, Starduster um, that uh-huh. was a mail in and. Mm-hmm this person put a question up about like, Hey, does anybody know what this number on his butt is? It's a 2017. And it was like, because kids. It was a black major Starduster, <laughs> um, made in 2017. Yeah. And I feel like that's like maybe gray, but he also does these awesome different paint apps. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen like an, a, Oh yeah. I don't know if he makes, I don't know if he makes figures in the same color schemes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I
0: and I think that's what makes this stuff so awesome. And I don't know if he's one of those guys that's, um, I don't know if he's, Almost like um, like Banksy. Is he like entirely anonymous, or is he like do people know him? Or
1: I have no idea. This is a whole new r- world for me. Like I got a you know it, I just started getting re into GI Joe. I don't know. New York Comic Con was the beginning of October, so it's probably about two months. I started being like looking in, like I really want this. Like something caught in my head where I'm like. I was making some room, selling off some of my Godzilla figures. I'm like, I really love a few of these G.I. Joe things that I had as a kid. This is a weird one. So this, this is where my G.I. Joe sort of reignited.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, I live in Brooklyn. Three blocks from me, there's somebody in their garden, their front yard garden has, there's a G.I. Joe vehicle that was a troop transport called the APC, the All Personnel Carrier, uh-huh. or Armored Personnel Carrier. And it's, like a, it's got like six wheels, and it's got a long thing that you can seek a bunch of figures in.
0: Mm-hmm. i know i know exactly what it is it, yep.
1: yeah it's got like a tan camo tan on the top mm-hmm. and a cannon on the top well this person's house in front of their house and we moved here about three and a half years ago it, it they used it as a like a planner so you know it was a broken it's got nothing but it's like it's got you see the base and the wheels and then there's like dirt in it and stuff and i was like yeah man i used to love that thing and <laughs> something about specifically this is a weird one specifically about the style and design of the tires that reminded me of how much I love that toy. Yeah. And, um, the GI Joe vamp, uh, G mm-hmm. original one in particular, but even the vamp Two And the Cobra stinger, which was the, basically we're going to reuse the molds and make a couple of yep. changes. And when I went to new, so I started looking up like prices, like how much is this to come? I went to New York comic con with my friend Jen Bartholomeo and man, within two aisles in New York comic con, I managed to get like a perfect vamp, Oh, uh, it's man. an two vamp with all the parts, steering wheel, gas cans, everything, great shape Ooh. with an eighty-three swivel arm clutch. Ooh. So it wasn't the original figure, but it's actually I'm a bigger fan. I have a straight arm snake eyes now um, from 82, but I would actually rather have all 83. Uh, mm-hmm. with, they would consider it a version 1.5 so they have the swivel arm yeah listeners this got really specific <laughs> yeah, but i managed to come home with that we've
0: our, into a new level yeah
1: geek- we've gone into a, a new <laughs> level of geek heaven or hell depending on the listener um but with that i started like getting into the groups and finding out so in terms of researching like the issues with figures um you know like uh literally yesterday two days ago i finally got a roadblock a 1984 roadblock loose mm. i'm not i don't really care about file cards or weapons on them i just want to put them in a vehicle and uh i went to bend his leg and the damn thing just shattered like uh. plastic. and so i you know it's a 12 dollar figure so it's not like massive and i'm like oh these are the types of things i have to deal with collecting this stuff yeah um so you know in terms of like where black matrix sits with it like you know I think people use it for troop building or for customs, which I totally get. And in terms of the vintage market, um, I didn't realize like how popular GI Joe still was amongst collectors. Yeah, But there's also this weird thing, and I'm trying to figure this out in my own head, like in in, in Godzilla land, people will buy variations of stuff, but Mm -hmm. nobody's necessarily buying, at least I haven't seen buying 10 of the same figure. Uh I'll see people post like, hey, I got my 50th figure right? Of this Uh one figure complete. And in my head, part of my heart's like, there's probably 48 other people that would love to have that figure. Maybe you don't need 50 of them. And I'm trying to like navigate that, you know, where I'm like, you know, it's great that you have like 10 of this one vehicle, but maybe there's like eight people that would (laughs) have one of them, you know, um, there's a hoarding aspect.
0: Yes. Yes. And I've heard that's the term for that. I'm familiar with that. I think I think I've heard it referred to as hoard collecting, like, like hoarding slash collecting, hoard collecting. Yeah. I, yeah, there's a certain... I don't know. I think everybody uh, has sort of a thing for that one figure where one is not enough. Like, I don't know. I've, I've gone through it with... I, mine was Mego Green Goblin. I never had it as a kid. And so there was one time when I had close to 10 Mego Green Goblins. And <laughs> then... <laughs> Uh, thankfully, I kind of evened out. I think I only have uh, two now um, but yeah there's something there 's something about that and i yeah i, I don 't know there 's that component with collecting where it 's you want to enjoy it and when it gets to a point where you're getting angry for not being able to find things as much, and then then you can start getting angry at the company who's producing it, and then the dis- people who are distributing it. A lot of that has happened with the Numego stuff with Target because there's a sole distri- distributor of the Numego toys, and uh, I don't know. It kind of, I don't know. It kind of snaps you out of the fun of collecting, and you kind of have to be like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This is supposed to be fun. Um, am I having fun? If not, why am I doing this sort of a thing?
1: But. I also feel like with the Mego stuff, and I, I wish them well, like I want other kids to get introduced, but they're also, it's targeted at us. I mean, who's going oh, yeah. to, there's no kid who's going to buy it. So it's like as a collector, it's kind of like when your favorite punk band breaks big, you kind of don't want to be like, I'm going to go to Target and go buy like a Slayer album. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, it, it, it's sort of that vibe of like, yeah, that's really cool that it's here. Um, I would rather be, at a you know, it'd be even cooler if it was in a comic book shop and I would consider it. Um,
0: yeah, there, that's
1: a- just... I say this every time I go to New York Comic Con and any big comic convention. It's like, you know, like you get however many 20, 30, 40,000 people go to one of these things and yet local comic book shops can't stay open.
0: Like, yeah, that's crazy interesting, crazy. isn't it?
1: Yeah. And, uh, I, I really wish we could do it. I mean, I'm sure I'm part of the problem. I just I don't, generally, I don't buy a lot of comic books anymore. And mm-hmm. the toy lines that I collect, are either way more overpriced, but I am at least buying them from other collectors or from, more reputable places in Japan, but like, it, there's like that lost, there's no loyalty, you know, like yeah. heroes world comics, like will go down in my life is like the comic book store that helped define me. You know, if we yeah, go sure to these moments mm-hmm. and uh, star Wars would be the movie that really defined me um, mm-hmm. in terms of where I would go down on that stuff. And, and star Wars toys leading into GI Joe would be the toy lines um, Mm -hmm. that really made me into being a toy collector for better or fricking worse though. I mean, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing spending any money on this? Um, (laughs) at all, you know, I'm like, you know, it's like, I don't make a ton of money. (laughs) and Kids are going to have to go to school. Yeah. Uh, But I have been able to like, actually like sell off a bunch. Like it's that hoarding concept. Like I think social media has made an interesting thing where you can basically find anything now, And if you have the money for it, you could buy anything you want right now. You want the rarest toy? You'd probably Mm -hmm. be able to find it through an auction site or on eBay, and and buy it, and you had. So there's this thing of where uh, you know it's easy for the wealthy to win, right? And then they can share their this thing. So I'm not making this a class battle, but like I noticed that in one of the Godzilla groups in particular, there's there's somebody that like suddenly within two years their collection is not only massive, it's a lot of custom pieces. Where you're like. I know how much these are and it's easy to do the math But this is like a shit ton of money. So clearly yeah. you're, you're either not eating elsewhere or, <laughs> you know, you're wealthy, which is fine. But sure. the problem with social media is as people start to relate and, and compare their collections against each other, like, where's my status within this group if this person has all of this stuff and I only have like my few pieces. Yeah. And that's a weird one. So like when it comes to troop building, like I get it, if you're in a dioramas or you want to have a few of the, you know, troops behind but when mm-hmm. you start hitting like 50 figures, I mean, in my head, uh, guys, if anybody's listening to this, that is one of those people. I, I still love you anyway, but I'm, and I'm trying <laughs> to rationalize this in my thought process as a collector. It's like, it seems like geek collecting, dick swinging to me a little bit. Like, check out how many <laughs> I got. Because like, why do, would you ever need 50 of them? Unless you're selling them. But I don't think a lot of people are selling them. You know, yeah. like, don't hold on to rainy day figures like that. Share, share them out with the world.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting the, like the the habits within collectible communities, like some of these things I haven't even really thought of that you've brought up, but, uh, cause I'm not on a ton of, 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 forums, but yeah, that is interesting. I don't know. Me personally, I tend to ebb and flow in my levels of like obsession, um, and I don't know, acquiring, and then I'll kind of even out, sell some stuff. And I think I always feel better about buying new stuff. If I'm kind of like, if I kind of go through my collection and I'm, I kind of see things. Okay, um, do I need this? Does this bring me joy? I, are the two questions I've heard to always ask yourself? Yeah. And when I can let go of some stuff that I don't need, and it's stuff that's just in a box, and I can use it to buy some stuff that I do need, I feel as a as a adult and a husband and a father of four daughters, I feel a bit more responsible if I'm, you know, what I'm saying. If I'm able to let go of some stuff to get some new stuff, it feels
1: fully totally agree yeah it, it's kind of like that like uh, um you know something has to, something out to bring something in or whatever yeah that, that sort of thing and, is i just sold off a bunch of it so one of the things like i started collecting this line and i could never afford to be a completionist on it but i started really looking at like okay so i have do i really need a godzilla figure of every suit you know just because it's it might be a cool looking thing but then all right it's a cool looking figure but then i have to ask myself did i really love that movie yes movie one of my favorites versus like this is just another one of those things and so yeah i sold off like 10 of my godzilla figures and with that you know that money paid for the the, the joes uh-huh um and am um, but starting to back off there's a great site called yojo.com where you can look at like basically every vehicle and every figure by year and put mm-hmm. together a checklist and even if i were like somehow won the lottery there's only like maybe 10 more things i'm interested in getting like a handful of figures and a couple of vehicles so like i feel like i'm good on that yeah. Um, and I just want to appreciate it. But it's also like that thing about, uh, this came up in the conversation. You see people that buy like in particular in Godzilla, cause the U S toys, it's a little bit different, but you see people that are spending so much money on Godzilla toys, where if they backed off the figures, they could actually go to Tokyo.
0: That's an interesting point.
1: You know what I mean? Like where it's wow. like, it's like realistic where you're like, guys, like I know you, in two months, you just spent more than a, uh, than a week in Tokyo. Wow. Your figures like maybe go to Tokyo. Uh-huh. Maybe you could buy a figure there, or maybe just go to the toy stores and just look. You know, mm-hmm. like this year, I didn't really. I only came home with maybe thirty dollars worth of stuff for myself, and I got yeah. my stuff. Um, but like, there's that whole too of like, am I getting? I, I I would imagine by for you too. I get inspired by my collection. Like these things mean a lot to me. They get inspired. They inspire me to like want to write better classes, to do videos, and 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 that yep. stuff. Like, even in the fitness world, they they hit me and you know clearly as a film major because that's my background in film and visual effects before this um that inspired me i wouldn't have gotten into any of that if it wasn't for things like star wars um the lost ark and but there's this all like there's this outside world where i feel like sometimes the collection becomes like a way to just stay inside too much but
0: yeah i don't know i've heard that that shit (laughs) yeah yeah it is it's uh it's tricky. I, I I've been on all level. I've been on all levels of obsession with, you know, in terms of I was buying way too much, and then and you know, I've kind of almost been not been buying anything, and then I I feel like I've kind of evened out where somebody introduced the radical concept of of just getting what I really like and keeping. <laughs> I, I don't
1: know. It sounds revolutionary, but no, um, You know, it's so weird, man. It's because it's such a collector brain. I have Mm -hmm. to remind myself that I can like something without having to own a piece of it in my apartment. Yeah. It's a really weird thing. Like I was just watching some, you know, GI Joe cartoons and I was just watching the show GI Joe Renegades that I really enjoyed. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It came out, I think in 2011 or 2010. I've seen
0: a couple episodes.
1: Super good show. Like really fun, you know, reimagining of of GI Joe. And I'm like, oh man, the designs are really cool. And I started looking at figures. I'm like, I don't need a piece of. G.I. Joe Renegades. <laughs> like yeah. I don't need, it's, it's, it's not even attached to my childhood other than the brand and the character names. Like why? But I, I get that impulse and yeah. I'm finally at 46 realizing like I don't need to act on it. <laughs> That's good. That's maturity. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Growth moments, growth moments. Growth um, moments. Well, hey, man, we have been chatting for a while. Um, so it, let, let's let's start to wrap this up. If um, If somebody is thinking about following a creative pursuit. Cause I want to think about this outside of like, you know, uh, whether or not it's, but what I love it, we didn't even get to talk about skateboarding at all. We'll have to, have, we'll have to have you back on and, t- and chat some more down the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is super easy to rap with you. We would definitely have been going Thanks. to bookshops together. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But, but what I love about it is like, you know, whether it's like, uh, you're going to go into film or art or acting, you know, all well, these are kind of arts, but do you have any advice to somebody that's kind of on the fence of actually making a, a go out of it? One of the friends, one of, one of the things we were talking about actually having some drinks here last night was like, you know, we have a friend that, you know, plays in a lot of bands. He mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily, you know, make a ton of money, but he gets a tour all the time. Like he's doing his thing. And I think we yeah. all have those risks. Like me leaving my paying job to become a trainer has been a risk and it's a roller coaster. Some years are great and some years financially not so awesome. Um, yeah. You know, like you said in the very beginning of this thing, sometimes you're just having a bad fucking week and you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> what am I doing? Um, absolutely. But do you have any advice uh, in, in terms of like just uh, that, that if someone's like, you know, really on the fence, but feels that, you know, like you feel that compulsion in your gut, oh, yeah. like this is what I should be doing, even absolutely. though it's a scary thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say I had a couple thoughts because this is some, as a creative, as an artist, this is something I've wrestled with a lot. But there, uh, a couple thoughts that I have is that definitely pay attention to that. And there is this there is this weird dance of being willing to dream and and think big because you want to think big, you want to th- you know uh, you want to you want to approach life as an adventure. You want to think, uh, but you also want. And I won't say but, I will say and. And you also want to think of the most realistic and reasonably headed way of approaching that. So I think that when somebody says, you know, uh, just jump and the universe will catch you or throw you a net or something like that, in most instances, like somebody who just wants to leave their day job and they don't have a backup plan, it's probably a bad idea. Not always, sometimes. No. You know. I kind of
1: agree though. I, you know, when, when I made this switch, I, I wrote a blog uh, called reinventing your exit and a lot of people were asking me like, like, well, how'd you do it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, um, small steps. You know, I started doing this stuff yep. the time. I started building. Yes. So for that, for that big jump, uh, I, I, you know, I, I would tell people like make sure you have some water in the pool before you make the jump.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you will be in a very similar circumstance three months from now and you probably won't have much money to your name. Yeah. Uh, you might be in a worse situation. So it's that weird da- dance of of balancing, thinking big and and paying attention to your passions and the things that kind of uh, the fire that runs through your veins with, with creativity and, and paying attention to that and also approaching it sober-mindedly. Um, so that you don't get your, so that you protect the thing that you love is what I've heard. There's a one guy I've listened to a lot called Sean, uh, Sean West, the Sean West podcast, and he he talks exclude, and he wrote a book called Overlap, and it's basically like how to pursue your dream while holding down a, a day job, and and he talks about overlapping, and that's a that's a huge thing is is being responsible, providing for your daily needs with what what you're doing, you know, your day job and also pursuing the thing that you love on the side, but also protecting that thing that you love on the side. Because he talks about how, you know, if you make the jump and then you are uh you are in a you know, say you're an artist or musician or whatever and you're taking jobs that you don't necessarily want to take and you're not getting paid what you want that you feel like you're deserved. And so you're in this sort of scarcity mentality and then So you're kind of in a state of desperation and you don't want that. You want, from what I've heard, uh, the mindset is one of abundance. You want to approach this, you know, so that you can do what you love and that that thing can thrive. So I would say, man, if you're an artist or you're creative, definitely pursue that don't, don't forget about that. That keeps you alive and, and it'll, it'll get to you sooner or later anyways, probably. But, um, also probably, one of the best ways of approaching that sober-mindedly is look at the business side of what you're doing creatively. I find that a lot of artists, um, myself included, of just, you know, you feel like you do this this great work and, and, you, and you do, but, and you want the world to see that and recognize that, but the world is a really big place and uh, you have to work, you have to get your stuff out there, you have to learn the business side of things. And most artists don't want to take I've found at least that most artists don't want to take the time to learn the business side of, of, of their art. And that's crucial. If you want to pursue that, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes total sense. I think, uh, it's solid advice. I mean, even in, you know, in terms of protecting, I know, and I've struggled with this, you know, uh, I loved training a for myself, just working out and, and what it provided me to become, you know, in my thirties, uh, you know, a stronger dude, a stronger Mm parent. Um, and I went so down the becoming a trainer coach rabbit hole that, you know, suddenly like training was like extra work for me. And I, I, I fell off of it a bit. Like, and I struggled, I struggle sometimes to find the joy in just lifting weights. Like I used to, I, I mm-hmm. have it fortunately now it's like, you know, everything waves. Um, yeah, a lot of people find that when you try to monetize the thing you love thinking like, you know, everyone says like, you know, take your passion and make it like your gig that there is a different level of stress when there's a price tag because suddenly it's like, if you suck at it and it's not that you suck at it creatively, but if if you're not making the money financially, you suck at it at the moment. Mm -hmm. You start to like that, that lack of income becomes how you judge your own ability versus it was the ability that made you want to do the thing in the first place. Yep. And I think that's what happens too many times, you know, when, when people jump out, you know, it's funny about the, so this podcast is probably going on, 14 months now, I think 14 months about, right. So a little Mm -hmm. over a year and within the, you know, uh, every week, except for we took a two week vacation while I was in Tokyo and, you know, people would ask, you know, how do you set it up? I really want to do it. How do you do it? Are you making money? And one of the things I love to say is like this podcast, like per hour um, of work that goes involved in it, I make probably about 25 cents. <laughs> an hour. Yeah. But I love it, right? So it's like, for me, this is like a wonderful creative outlet. Like the fact that you and I and listeners, um, I don't know if we stress this, like we have never spoken before other than um, Instagram messaging to see yep. if it would come on this. And one of the most amazing things about this show is getting to meet people like Tim, who are now like in my expanded universe of friends. I hope that doesn't count, it seem creepy, dude, but I, I count you as a friend now
0: absolutely um, fury
1: is getting to know people and you know like dave dobko who was on the last one who i met on a on a facebook godzilla group who helped me with locating shops and touring around japan like these are the positive sides of social media that i don't want to see lost because like we would have never had this conversation or known of each other without that stuff and i think that's rad and uh any of my listeners like i'm excited for you to check out his art like this is a weird one where like please go to tim timbarron.com or, uh, Tim Barron, at Tim Barron art is your Instagram. Yeah. Yeah,
0: um, definitely check out my Instagram at Tim Barron art. And that's, you'll see all, everything that I'm up to, everything that I'm, I'm, uh, doing, I I'm on there daily. So usually post nude daily. So that, post that's new daily. It sounded like <laughs> post it's post nude. nude daily. I don't do that.
1: Either one of are. those Instagram sites <laughs> shoot, shoot for either. That's his, that, that's his Snapchat with, uh, <laughs> right. Um, right. But, uh, I, I think that's one of the cool things. So, um, That's why I do the show because quite frankly, you know, I teach for organizations and there's pressure to create blogs and shoot videos. And it's like, I don't want to do all all the time. Like another, like, here's how to swing a kettlebell video. Um, Mm -hmm. When we go out after a course, you know, I don't necessarily want to talk about fitness anymore. I want to talk about like other shit that defines you other than just this thing. We just spent a whole day on. Um, I want to talk about toys and movies and music and all that other stuff that creates a more rounded uh, area. And in training, it's hard. And I would imagine art, it's hard too. It's like, you know, our hours could be super early to super late. So it's a long day. Um, So it's like, I want to have these breaks where we can talk about other stuff. So I think that was like really solid advice. If you've never read the book, um, War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Oh,
0: that's an amazing book. I love that book.
1: Listeners, I know I probably people are going to think like all I read is a few comic books and the war of art repeatedly. (laughs) But um, I I do think, you know, we talked about like, you know, the the stuff that's scary when you have that feeling. But if you deny that feeling and and you have to be realistic, what I love about Tim actually giving that answer too is we both have kids. So these chances can't be totally reckless because right um, on top of it. But if you make an educated plan and it will have to change cause things aren't always going to work. I mean, my plan completely sort of restructures, but you have to be open to restructuring. Um, is if you make an educated plan, you give yourself the best shot at success, knowing it might fail. But like you, you if you don't do it, you just never going to know. Like that's the worst fucking part. Like if you just never try and you never know, yeah. um, you know, I just don't want to be like 65 going like, what if I became a trainer? Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. if this all ended tomorrow, uh, at least I I mean I have memories that I wouldn't I never believed that I'd be able to travel to teach people, you know? Yeah. That's um, awesome. Or have conversations like this. This is fucking fantastic. Um yeah. all right, man. On that note, hey, uh we already mentioned your socials, but uh is there anything coming up? Do you have any shows coming up? Anything you wanna where people can connect with you?
0: Yeah. Like I said, uh, at Tim Barinard on Instagram is the best place to catch what I'm up to. I've got some really cool, uh, projects in the works, uh, with a couple of skateboard companies and, uh, actually with a toy company. Also, I recently working on a project that I'll be making some announcements in the near future. So lots nice. of cool stuff going on. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to you Fury. thank you for having me on your show and giving me the time. And, uh, it was really great talking to you as well, my friend
1: thanks man uh at the end of every episode the guest tells the listeners to die mighty which is sort of my mission statement can you please tell the listeners to die mighty die mighty my friends die mighty awesome man thank you so much for coming on the show uh listeners check out the socials his artwork's awesome uh especially if you're an 80s head like us um you will really appreciate where the material's coming from and the skateboard art which we didn't even talk about you 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 did artwork for Creature Skateboards, which is one of my favorite brands. I I was riding a deck uh, about two years ago before. Awesome. I haven't been skating quite as much in the last couple of years um, as I've been hopping on the BMX bike as well. But, dude, awesome stuff. Um, Thank you. And everybody, thank you for listening. The Coach Fury podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury-Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, tour, music, and merch info. Artwork created by Glenn Gurrieta. Visit glengurrieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or follow him on Instagram at glengurrieta. Voice over by Laura Palmer.